we're going to be reading John chapter 3 and uh, celebrating the wonder, the amazingness of God's grace. John chapter 3, verses 1 through 21. This is the inerrant Word of God. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is, the Son of Man, who is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. He who believes in Him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen, that they have been done in God. Amen. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your word that is a guide to our lives, that is our sanctifying power, uh, that uh, uh, helps us to uh, understand your mind and to draw into a closer relationship with you. Thank you, Father, that you have written these words to us in love. And Father, we want to respond back in love to you. Uh, you have said greater love has no one than this than to lay down his life for his friends. You have laid your all uh, upon the altar in Christ Jesus for us and we want to lay our all upon the altar as we respond to your word and continued worship now anoint the preaching anoint the receiving and the hearing and the living out of this word and father may you be glorified this morning and we pray it in Jesus name amen, amen. You may be seated Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, uh, who's one of my fam fa favorite preachers in England, 
I was once counseling a guy who just did not think that he could be saved. And Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones told him, look, anyone who repents of their sins and puts their faith in Jesus can be saved. You can be saved. And he said, no, I have committed the unpardonable sin. I cannot be saved. And Lloyd-Jones said to him, if you repent, it's guaranteed you have not committed the unpardonable sin. And so repent and believe. But he said, my sin is just too great to uh, be forgiven. So Lloyd-Jones read 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He said, since God is a God who cannot lie, it would be impossible for you to repent of your sins and have committed the unpardonable sin. So just repent. Because it's simple logic. He says anyone who confesses his sins will be forgiven of those sins. All of his sins. And uh, this guy, he just uh, continued to say that uh, he did not think his sin could be forgiven. And so Lloyd-Jones took a different tack. He went on the offensive and he told this man, you know what? Your sins are far greater than you can ever imagine. You've got far more sins. Let me list out some of the sins that you've committed besides the sin of pride. You're calling God a liar. What arrogance to call God a liar. And this guy was a little bit taken aback. He said, how did I call God a liar? He said, I just told you. I read 1 John 1, 9 that says that everyone who confesses their sins will be forgiven of all their sins. And you said, nah, it's not going to be that way with me. You just called God a liar. What blasphemy. What slander against God's name. What pride, what arrogance. In fact, you're guilty of idolatry because you're coming to a different God than the God of the Bible. And all of a sudden, the lights went on in this guy's head and he realized what the problem was. He realized that he was holding on to just a little bit of goodness. He felt he had to have a little bit of goodness in order to be worthy of being forgiven by God. And that's our human nature, to want to hold on to just a little bit of goodness. Well, anyway, this this guy, um, he saw that the gospel was good news to those who had no goodness. The lights came on, he repented, he was soundly converted. And he finally came to see that salvation is by grace alone. It's uh, a grace that is sufficient, that is full, that is uh, overflowing into the lives of of his people. And I love this verse's exposition and expression of God's grace, pure grace. Now John 3:16 would have been a very startling verse for Nicodemus because it went so contrary to everything that they've been taught as Pharisees. I've read about a thousand pages of Pharisaic doctrine in the Talmud and I just gave up after a while. It was just too it was too bad, but it illustrates a lot of what Jesus was going against. Uh, in his um, teaching on the Sermon on the Mount and other places like that. But after reading those thousand pages or so, I began to realize when Jesus gave this verse to, uh, to Nicodemus, he was hurling a spiritual hand grenade into that room. <laughs> it was just turning his world upside down, shattering all of his expectations of what God's grace was about. Now, let me just list a few. 
uh, contrary to Phariseeism, which emphasizes man's labors to reach out to and to seek God, Jesus is pointing to the fact that God is reaching down and taking the initiative and He is seeking man. Contrary to the Pharisees who founded their justification on their own works, He's pointing to the works of Jesus. Contrary to the Pharisees who said, oh yeah, God loves righteous Jews, but He hates the Gentiles, Jesus is saying He loves believing Gentiles too. And this would have been something that, that uh, would have been very hard for them to understand. Contrary to Phariseeism, which taught that people could lose their salvation, this passage indicates that all those who believe will never lose their salvation. In fact, the Greek is doubly strong because the hutas hoste clause with the, uh, uh, the, uh, the um, Indicative is a form of grammar that means when this happens, this is what always inevitably results. And so when you apply that grammar to this verse, what it means is all those to whom God sent His Son will believe and will persevere. They will never perish. It's just, in the Greek, it's just so strong. And so this is a verse that would have blown this Pharisee out of the water. And there are other surprises in this verse as well that we're going to be taking a look at. It is an incredible comfort for God's elect, but it's also an encouragement to those who think that they can't be forgiven of their great, uh, great sins. And so I want to give a 12-point outline. We're going to kind of take 12 windows in the house of grace, and we're going to be looking around and looking all of the different facets of God's grace, and feel free as we're going through this passage to worship God and to praise Him and to let out an occasional amen or hallelujah, because God wants our hearts to be hearts of worship and expressing faith in what His Word has to say. Okay, the first word in this verse hints that there's a reason or a need for this pure grace. For... God so loved the world. Now, it's very easy to just skip over that four, but that four is indicating don't yank this verse out of context. In Dana and Manti's Greek grammar, it says that this is an explanatory four. What it's doing is it's explaining what had been so confusing to this Nicodemus. It's a verse that takes away the confusion of a Pharisee. Now, when you understand that, you begin to realize, wow, that gives a whole new light on what John 3.16 means. It, 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 the context helps us to, to not misinterpret it as well. There, I've read uh, expositions of this passage that import all kinds of weird and strange doctrines into John 3.16. For example, I read a, a liberal exposition that said that this shows that the, the world has good in it. Because God loves this world. He would not love that which is worthless. And therefore, uh, this world has some good in it. And then he says, you're part of the world. And therefore, you have good in you. Or God would not love you. You have some worth within you. It's the exact opposite of what the context is talking about. The context has been saying, we are so unworthy of His grace. Uh, we are sinful. We're deserving of His judgment. Now, there are other errors as well. Bartians, and you may not know what a Bartian is, uh, sometimes they're called neo-orthodox, I like to call them neoliberals because it's just another form of liberalism, but uh, Karl Barth and his followers say that this verse teaches that the whole world, every man, woman, and child, the Hitlers and the, and the Stalins and everybody else are going to be saved eventually. And uh, 
Yet Christ indicates in the context that there are people who are not going to be saved. So they're yanking it out of context. They're ignoring that word for. We cannot do that. I've heard people say that this verse proves that man must make the first step toward God before he can be saved. What Jesus has just finished saying is nobody can make any steps whatsoever until God gives them life, until God causes them to be born again. He's arguing against a man-centered view of salvation. Uh, One person that I read interpreted John 3.16 to say, this is God's great work of cooperation with man. God builds the bridge across the chasm of hell and we are responsible for providing some timbers uh, to connect that bridge to the mainland. And so uh, Arminians say that we have to provide faith. God's not going to give that as a gift. We have to provide faith. Five-point Arminians say we've got to provide the timbers of faith and perseverance. And Pharisees would say we've got to provide the timbers of faith, perseverance, and enough good works. And what Jesus is saying, man, you got it all backwards. There isn't anything that we could provide that would be of any worth to the Lord. They're rotten timbers altogether. As verse 27 says, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. We can't have life, we can't have faith, we can't have good works unless they flow from God. Paul said, I know that in me nothing good dwells except for what God has produced within him. There's all kinds of good. He goes on to say, but God produced it. And it's in heaven that he starts his discussion in verse 3. And so for this first point, what I want to do is I want to give a brief survey of verses 3 through 15, which talk about God's sovereign grace. Then we'll look at uh, verse 16, which is God's motive for his sovereign grace. It is his sovereign love. So take a look at verse 3. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again. I want you to look in the margin. If you've got a a New King James in the margin, it says born from above. If you've got a different version, most all of the other versions say born from above. They translated it right. And I don't know why they didn't change this. The King James Version mistranslated this. Anothen in the Greek always means from above. does not mean being born again. Uh, But anyway, they somehow kept it in here, maybe because it's such a favorite verse and people have memorized it and they figured they better not mess with it. But uh, literally it says, unless one is born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. And so what he's doing here is he's emphasizing God's work. It's the work of heaven down to earth. And until you are born from above, you can't see spiritually. Is basically what he is saying. You can't walk. You can't do anything. You don't have uh, this. Like, now, we don't get born by believing. We believe after we have been born, according to the Scriptures. John 1.13 says, "...who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God." He's saying man's will is altogether excluded from the whole equation of spiritual birth. It's God's will and God's will alone that causes this to happen. Now, that's devastating to a Pharisee. And Nicodemus stumbles all over himself to try to avoid that conclusion in verse 4 because he doesn't understand grace. In verse 5, Christ repeats, you cannot work your way into the kingdom. You are born into the kingdom. Verse 6 indicates only the Holy Spirit produces the new birth. Flesh produces flesh. The spirit produces spiritual birth. The only thing an unregenerate man can produce is flesh. If you say, oh, yeah, you've got to supply faith, you've got to supply repentance, you've got to supply good works, what is it? It's fleshly. 
Anything fleshly is unacceptable to God. So flesh produces flesh. It's only the Spirit that produces that which is acceptable. And so verse 7 repeats, Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born from above. He's saying there isn't anything we could supply. It's got to come from God's grace. And verse 8, Jesus again shows that sovereign grace is at work. There is no way, he says, you can put God in a box. You can make God beholden to you because of your works or because of your faith. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. He's saying God causes people to be spiritually born, born from above, born again, however you want to word that. He causes it to happen however He wants to do it. It's totally up to the Holy Spirit. Okay? It, it's sovereignly given. Just as you cannot tame or control the wind or guide the wind, you cannot tame, control the Spirit or guide the Spirit and say, I want this person to be born. He does it as He wishes. He sovereignly gives new birth. Now, Nicodemus is so saturated in Judaism that he says in verse 9, how can these things be? That's different than anything I've ever heard. I've heard we've got to contribute something. And in verses 10 through 12, Jesus basically says, look, Nicodemus, I want you to stop reading the Talmud. Actually, they didn't have the Talmud written back then. They're all oral traditions. They were put down later in the Talmud. But he says, I want you to stop listening to the opinions of men. I want you to start listening to me. After all, those Pharisees you've been taught by, they haven't been to heaven. I have. I've come down from heaven. In fact, I am presently in heaven, indicating his omnipresence uh, in, in, in that verse. Verse 14 destroys the idea that Jewishness can bring favor because it points to a time when God was uh, going to destroy the entire Israelite nation because of their sins. And you might remember the, the snake plague. They were bitten in bed, bitten at the table, bitten when they were walking. And it was terrifying. People were dying all over the place. And what was the only thing that averted that total annihilation of Israel? It wasn't their good works because good people and bad people were dying. It wasn't their Jewishness. Everybody was a Jew, you know, and, and they were dying anyway. The only thing that averted the difference was God's intervention, uh, God uh, bringing deliverance to them. And he says the same is true in terms of our spiritual salvation. And so verses 1 through 15 were intended to humble Nicodemus by pointing to sovereign grace. The moment you start looking to man for explanations, you begin to compromise the gospel. There's many different kinds of compromise, but they all flow from man. What we need to do is realize it all flows from God. We love Him because He first loved us. We live because He laid down His life for us. And so the reason for grace is not founded in the depraved dead sinner. It's found in God. And this brings us to the second point. Verse 16 says, For God so loved. Now that's amazing. A holy God could love the world. A holy God. Now, we could understand the wrath of God. We could understand God loathing and detesting sinners. Pharisees, they were quite well versed in all of the scriptures that speak of God's hatred of sinners. And they're true scriptures, you know. They're, uh, we accept everything that the Bible has to say, but they're only part of the truth. If you take the, the verses that talk about God's hatred from sinners away from the verses that talk about God's love for sinners... You don't understand the gospel. And that's what they had done. They had taken these verses out of context. Now let me read some of the verses that the Pharisees 
uh, had as favorite verses. Oh, they loved to quote these when they were thinking about, you know, those plebeian Jews, you know, those sinners, and, and when they were talking about Gentiles. Psalm 5.5 5 says about God, You hate all workers of iniquity. Doesn't just say he, he hates the iniquity. He says you hate all workers of iniquity. Proverbs 11.5-7, through 7, The wicked and the one who loves violence, his soul hates. Again, he's not just hating the sin. Those verses say he hates the sinner. Now, some people say, oh, well, maybe that's talking about a lesser kind of love. But the next verse uh, contradicts that because he says the demonstration of this hatred for sinners is that God's going to rain the fury of his fire upon them in hell. That's a pretty interesting way to love somebody. No, he's talking about hate. Uh, and he says he hates the, the, the wicked. He loves the righteous. Um, in, in Proverbs uh, 6, in verses uh, 6, uh, well, actually Proverbs 3, verse 32, for the perverse person is an abomination to the Lord. Again, it's not just the sin. He says the perverse person. It's the person themselves. Their very existence is an offense, is a stench in God's sight. It's an offense to Him. Proverbs 6, verses 16 through 19, the Lord hates a false witness who speaks lies and one who sows discord among the brethren. Deuteronomy 25.16, For all who do such things and all who behave unrighteously are an abomination to the Lord your God. And so the Pharisee will say, See, you've you got to be good in order for God to love you. And uh, they were taking it out of context. They were saying, God hates the sinner. We say, Of course He hates the sinner, but you've only got part of the equation. Now the wonder is, how can God love any of us because all of us are sinners according to the Scripture. The wonder is that a holy God would love us and it's founded upon grace and grace alone. Now let's take a look at the third point. This verse not only shows the amazing source of love, a holy God, but that this grace was motivated by love. God so loved. God so loved. Now there's debate among scholars as to how to translate that phrase. Um, uh, whether you translate it, God thus loved the world that he gave. In other words, this is the way in which he, the manner in which he loved the world. He gave his son. Or whether you should translate it, God so loved. In other words, this is the greatness of his love. But it really doesn't matter. Either way you take it, the, the emphasis is still the same, that we are utterly unworthy of this, this great love. He loved us enough that he put the son to death. He loved us with great enough love that His only begotten Son was the sacrifice He was giving. What He's emphasizing is this love is an amazing love. In fact, it's the greatest love that God has for anyone. Now, to me, this is incredibly encouraging. Why would God love us with the greatest love possible? And the answer is it's because He loves His Son. And He sees us as in the Son. When He looks at us, He sees Jesus. When he looks at us, he sees his righteousness, and his righteousness is perfect, right? He sees his righteousness upon us. In other words, his love itself is grounded on grace. It's an amazing thing how all of the attributes are interwoven. It's a loving grace and a loving holiness, but it's a holy love. And it's a, all of these things, you've got to see each attribute in light of all of the other attributes. Now, as God sees sinners from eternity past, He sees them, if they are elect, He sees them as elected in the Son, 
And he can love them as intensely as he loves the son. Now, this is the thing I have a hard time wrapping my brain around because in the Gospels, Jesus said, just as the father loved me, so he has loved you. It's like, how in the world, how in the world could that be possible? That God loves me with the greatest love possible. Romans 8.39 says that nothing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's where His love resides. It is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And it's only as He sees us united to Christ that He could love us. Now, if even for a second He saw us outside of Christ, He would loathe us. He would cast us away from His presence just as He cast uh, Satan and all of the other fallen angels away from His presence. But when He sees us in Christ, He loves us with an everlasting love. It's an amazing, amazing thing. It is grace through and through. And you say, now wait a shake. This says that he loved the world. If what you say is true, then the world's going to be saved, right? That's exactly what verse 17 says. So it's the world he's talking about is going to be saved. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. God's intention in sending his son is nothing short of saving the world. And here's where Bartians misused the Scripture. Remember we said, they said everybody's going to be saved? Well, from the Greek grammar, you could see where they could get that. It's very strong in the Greek. And you can look at some of their exegesis. It's almost impossible to get away from it. Whatever world he's talking about, and there's eight, or I think in your bulletins there, I've given you nine different definitions of world. Whatever world he's talking about, that world is going to be saved. But Bartian universalists make the same mistake that Arminians do. They separate the definition of world from belief. It's a believing world. Okay? Verse 17 says, Whatever world is in view, God did not come into the world to condemn the world, but to save it. Verse 18 says, He who believes in Him is not condemned. So it's only through faith that this condemnation can be avoided. He goes on, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. The whole world loved darkness. It wasn't like, okay, there's some in the world who love darkness and others, okay, they managed to escape. No, the whole world loved darkness. So again, we're seeing this tension in Christ's theology that he's developing here. So it's obvious there is condemnation wherever there is unbelief and the only way the world will not be condemned is if it is a believing world. Now, how do we reconcile these verses with the ones that we already looked at? Because you can't deny that Scripture says God hates. He loathes the person of the wicked. And you can't deny the Scriptures that say God can only love them or love us as He sees us in the Son. But neither can you deny that there is a hell. Now, here's how I explain the verse. In your outline notes, I've taken from a dictionary nine different definitions of world, and three or four of them could fit here. For example, Romans 11.15 uses the term world to mean Gentiles as opposed to Jews. Now, in arguing with a Pharisee, this would make perfect sense. What it would be doing is it would be opposing exclusivism. There's a lot of Reformed people take it this way. These Jews were so exclusive. Are you kidding Loving the world, there's no way that God would do that. Believing Gentiles, they're not worthy of salvation. And that's Christ's whole point. Nobody's worthy of salvation, including you, Nicodemus. No one is worthy. 
And there are other possible definitions of the word world. Uh, Several passages define it as planet Earth and even the entire universe. Romans 8 says the entire universe has to be redeemed by the cross of Christ. Romans 8, look it up sometime. This whole universe is going to be entering into uh, the redemption of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's one possible uh, definition. Uh, God had to give His Son to redeem this universe. But the eschatological world is also a possibility. In other words, the world as God plans it. Now, whichever definition you take, and I don't really care how you interpret the word world there, it shows that the object of God's love is unworthy. And to me, this is a staggering thing. It's a staggering thing. But that phrase also points to the power of God's grace. Think of it this way. The world that was lost by Adam is not being given up on. It's going to be reclaimed by Christ. 2 Corinthians 9.18 speaks of the reconciliation of the world to Christ. Here's what it says. That God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself not imputing their trespasses to them. If their trespasses are no longer imputed to them, they won't be going to hell. There won't be any trespasses for them to to die for. So it says, let me read that again. Um, God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, not imputing their trespasses to Him. And then here gives the means. And God has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on God's behalf, be reconciled to God. Now, the world that they're preaching to hasn't been reconciled yet. It's in process of being reconciled. John 3.16 speaks the same way. It talks of God's saving love to the world, and the means to that end is bringing people to faith. And there is coming a time, as I have preached many times before, when the world is going to be full of righteousness, as full as the waters cover the ocean beds. Not as the waters cover the world, as the waters cover the ocean beds. That's pretty deep. Okay? Now, whether you're a pre-mill and think it's going to happen during the millennium, or whether you're a all-mill and think it's going to be happening in the new heavens and new earth, or whether you're a post-mill and think it's progressively going to happen, doesn't matter. Leave the eschatology out of it. The promise is going to be fulfilled one way or another. Okay, There's going to be a world in which dwells righteousness. God did not abandon the world and save only a few. He's going to have a saved world by casting out sinners. And so there is a power God's grace has to conquer a world that is at enmity with Him. So that speaks, uh, phrase speaks of the unworthiness of the object of grace, the power of God's grace to impact the world, And it also speaks of the progress and victory of God's grace. Now, this is the fun one for me because I'm a post-millennialist, okay? I just love the progress of God's grace. Romans 4.13 tells us that the promise of Abraham, promise given to Abraham, was not just that he would inherit Canaan, okay? It says the promise is he would be heir of the world. Heir of the world, God so loved the world, okay? And thus, 1 Corinthians 3, 21 through 23 says, For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. This world is yours because God has determined to save this world. 
one way or another, whichever eschatology you hold to, he's determined to save this world. And there's many scriptures like this which point not to Arminianism, but to the victory of God's grace in history. The unbelievers in Acts complained. They're turning the world upside down. You know, in Acts, it starts with 120 in the upper room, and then there's uh, some thousands, and then there's many believers, and then there's multitudes, and then there's many multitudes, and then there's myriads, and then they're turning the world upside down. And finally, at the end of the, ch- the book of uh, Acts, it's even Rome that's crumbling to the gospel. Caesar's household has be- converts coming into it. And the imagery there is from Daniel chapter 2, where it says that image of humanism is eventually going to be destroyed. The the, the stone cut without hands is the kingdom of heaven. It's coming down, smiting the image at the feet, which is Rome. It's crumbling that image. It's gradually growing into a mountain. And then that mountain gradually takes over the whole world. Okay, that's the imagery that was begun. So it's marvelous grace. It's victorious grace. It's pure grace. Nothing but grace could accomplish that. Now, point seven is a theological term that I haven't found a layman's term for. So if you come up with a good layman's term, we can throw that in. But it's monergistic. Monergistic is made up of two Greek words, mono meaning one and ergeo meaning to work. And so you you can literally translate it only one person doing the work or only one person working. And and so the idea is that God's grace is a one-way street. It comes from God down to us. God so loved the world that He gave. It was His giving that made the difference, not something that we offer up to Him. And especially when we get to the phrase on justification, it's important to realize our works contributed nothing. Christ's works made it all. Salvation is a one-way street. It's not salvation by faithfulness of us. It's by faithfulness of God. In fact, salvation is not even founded on our faith. That's one trick question sometimes people give. Is your, um, is your justification founded upon faith or founded upon works? And evangelicals always say, oh, yeah, it's founded on faith. Eh, wrong answer. Uh, it's founded upon Christ's works, right? Faith is the means of receiving Christ's righteousness, It's not founded on our faith. All it is is the receptor of that faith. So the moment you say founded on faith, you've fallen into works righteousness. Anyway, uh, it's monergistic, 100% of Christ. Now, the eighth point is that it was a costly grace. He gave His only begotten Son. Now, it ought to humble us to realize that God's one and only was the one who became flesh and suffered for us just an amazing thing when you begin to meditate deeply on that. The perfect, the perfectly holy became sin for us. Without Christ, we could not have been loved. Without His perfect life being credited to us, we could not have been accepted. Without His dying in our place, we could not have escaped from hell. And the elect world, by the way, that's a tenth definition you can write in your definitions there. That was just from a dictionary, but other people say, no, there's an elect world. Uh, and that's what's going to be in, in eternity in the future. It's an elect world was loved with the greatest possible love. Why? Because God gave the greatest possible gift imaginable, and that is His Son, His one and only Son. Can you praise Him for your salvation? 
through God's grace is free to us, it costs the Father a great deal. And our hearts cry should be, thank you, thank you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, for all you have done in our redemption. Now the next phrase, that whoever believes, is a wonderful phrase. There have been some who have seen some of these scriptures about God's hatred of the sinners, and they have lacked assurance of their salvation. They have felt, maybe I'm not one of those loved ones. Maybe I'm one of the ones that will be hated. And what the scriptures basically tell us is the secret things belong to God. The things that are revealed belong to us. It's none of your business to question whether you are elect or not. What your business is, is to obey God's commandment to believe and repent. If you believe, you're elect. Okay? That's all there is to it. You're not supposed to worry about your election. You are supposed to obey the command to believe and not speculate. In John 6, Jesus said, The one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. By no means cast out. Now perhaps Satan has tempted you to think you've committed the unpardonable sin. And what you need to do is stop listening to Satan and say, No, I haven't, because I'm believing in Jesus. And he says, Anyone who believes in him, he will by no means cast out. So get out of my life. I'm not going to listen to you. And he might say, yeah, but you've committed the unpardonable sin. No, I haven't. I haven't. I am believing in Jesus. Well, maybe you didn't believe good enough when you were uh, making your conversion statement a few weeks ago. I don't care about the past. I'm looking to the Lord Jesus right now. He is my confidence. He is my justification. So Satan will say, yeah, but your sin is so great, you need to ignore him and say, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Okay? So this grace gives us confidence. But here's the point I want to make that's even more than our confidence. It's God's confidence. This is God's confidence that he will save you, that you will never perish. Not just our confidence. It's God's confidence. It says, whoever believes, or literally, it's every believing one in him will not perish. God is confident in the power of His grace to keep us. And it's good to ask, why is God so confident that uh, whoever believes in Him will never perish? Why is there no need to worry that a believer will not later on unbelieve? I mean, if there's something we have to supply and it's faith, maybe we've supplied it, but then we take that timber away and we lose our salvation. Why could there be this kind of confidence? Why the dogmatic confidence? Well, the answer is simple. Everything had to come from God in the first place, and so God can sustain that which He has begun. He who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Let me read you some scriptures. John 6:44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now, if it's only the Father's drawing power that can enable a person to come, it makes perfect sense that that same drawing power is going to guarantee that he will be raised up and be in heaven on the last day. And he says, everyone, everyone. John 6, verse 65 says, No one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my Father. Acts 3.16 speaks of the faith which comes through him. Acts 18.27 speaks of those who had believed through grace. Now, to me, this is mind-blowing. This is absolutely incredible. It's faith that lays hold of grace, but it's grace that enables us to even have faith to lay hold of grace. His grace begins, it continues, it sustains, it completes everything in our Christian life. 
This is why Augustine, who lived in the late 300s and early 400s A.D., said God's mercy goes before the unwilling to make him willing. It follows the willing to make his will effectual. It is grace, pure grace. Otherwise, without it, no one would believe. 1 Corinthians 2.14 But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. Nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. It takes God's powerful grace to make people believe, to submit and humble their hearts and say, I'm not even going to take a little bit of goodness with me into this. I realize there's nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked I come. And I'm only clothed in the righteousness of Christ. That is so humiliating to a sinner to to say something like that. But that's the whole purpose of sovereign grace. It's to humble the pride of man and to cause them to exult in the greatness of God. Grace enables us to worship. Why? Because we see the greatness of God. It takes God's powerful grace. Philippians 1.29 says, For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ to believe. It's been granted to believe. Ephesians 1.19 says, And what is the exceeding greatness of His power toward us, get this phrase, who believe according to the working of His mighty power. It took His mighty power to get any one of us to be able to believe. He has to break down our hard hearts. He has to give us a, a heart transplant, as it were. Amazing grace. God speaks so confidently in this verse because it's impossible for God to finish a work and not complete that work. Grace grants saving faith. It grants persevering faith. In John 6, Christ said, No one can come to Me unless the Father who has sent Me draws him. All that the Father gives to Me will come to Me. And here's the assurance to troubled souls. And the one who comes to Me, I will by no means cast out. Hallelujah. Praise Jehovah. Oh, my soul, Jehovah praise. Okay, these are incredible words of confidence in God's grace. But John 3.16 also demonstrates a Christ-centered grace. It says, whoever believes in Him. One definition of grace uses the acrostic, G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense. God's riches at Christ's expense. See, saving faith uh, believes in Christ, not the church. I've been debating with some people over the last two weeks uh, who, you know, as I bring scriptures to bear, they say, well, we can't understand the scriptures. We've got to trust the church, and we've got to trust what the church fathers say. And so I quote from the church fathers and show how they were really Protestants uh, on scripture on so many different areas. And they say, well, we've got to read the, pro- the, 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 you know, the fathers within the church. And, and finally I say, okay, so we can't read the scriptures on our own, and we can't read the fathers on our own. Can we really even read the church on our own? How do you know you understand the church? And who's to say that the church is not wrong? You're asking me to have a blind faith in the church? No way. Jesus calls us to have our faith in Him, not our faith in the church. He calls us to have our faith in Him, not in our works. To have our faith in Him, not in our faith. This was a mistake I made in my early growing up years. I doubted my salvation. I kept going forward to get saved over and over again because I wondered, am I really saved? And one of the problems with me is I was... 
having faith in my faith. I would always second-guess myself. Now, did I repent good enough back then? Did I believe good enough back then? And Satan would just do all kinds of mental tricks on me. And I didn't have a breakthrough on confidence until somebody rebuked me and said, Phil, you need to repent of putting your faith in your faith. Put your faith in Jesus. Do you believe in Jesus right now? Yes. Then forget about the past. And faith is an ongoing trust in Jesus. You hold on to Jesus no matter what is happening. Is your faith in Jesus right now? That's the key test. And so every time Satan tempts you to doubt because you're not good enough, say, I know I'm not good enough. That's why I'm holding on to Jesus. Or you didn't believe good enough. I don't care about the past. I'm holding on to Jesus. You keep responding to his temptations in that way. He is our justification. There is nothing man-centered in this message. The phrase should not perish speaks next of the contrast to grace or really what we deserve apart from God's grace. We deserve to perish. Now, universalists teach no one will perish and Christ says, no, no, that's, that's wrong. Only believers will not perish. All unbelievers are guaranteed they will perish. And that's an issue that has to be uh, thought about. You cannot ignore it. Don't just assume that you are saved. If you don't know for sure that you are secure in the Lamb of God, I urge you to put your faith in Jesus Christ and say, Lord, I'm not trusting my own righteousness. I'm trusting you. Only you could get me into heaven. Put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. There are many who deny that God is a God of judgment, but if there is no judgment, then there is no need for mercy. If there is no judgment, there's no need for grace. Mercy is the undeserved dropping of the judgment we deserve. Grace is the undeserved giving of the opposite, giving us the Son and with Him giving us all things, giving us His mercies, uh, giving us heaven. And that's uh, what I want to end with. The last phrase of the verse speaks of the eternality of grace, but have everlasting life. Now, the beauty of this in the Greek is that it doesn't say you will have as if in the future tense, but you have it right now. It's in the present tense. And so any person, whether he is reformed or not, who tells you that we don't know for sure that we're justified until the second coming, until judgment day, is messing around with the message. The moment you have faith, you are justified. You are secure. You already have that eternal life right now. God's grace is forever, and we're going to be held in His grace throughout all of eternity. And for eternity, we're going to be debtors worshiping Him, adoring Him for the incredible uh, way in which He spared us from what could have been given to us. And it all centers in Jesus. Without Jesus, there's no faith. There's no birth. There's no salvation, no heaven. To Nicodemus, who was working for his salvation, Jesus said, no, you have to be worked upon. You have to be born from above. Jesus alone is the bridge from hell to heaven. And those who are saved by Him, give Him glory knowing that it is grace, pure grace. Amen. Father, thank You. Thank You. Thank You so much for this grace that You have wrought for us in Christ Jesus. What an incredible gift. It amazes us that You would love us with this indescribable love. And Father, may we experience it evermore. Whatever barriers that there are to experiencing 
this love and walking with you. Take them away. We cast them at the foot of Jesus. Whatever blockages to your shedding abroad in our hearts the love of the Lord Jesus Christ, I pray that you would remove them. We want the cups of our lives to be open so that you can pour into us the experience of all that this verse is talking about. Your incredible mercy, your incredible grace, your incredible a love for those who in themselves were really not lovable. We love you, Father, because you first loved us and it is our glory to serve you and to lay down our lives and to have the rest of our lives be a P.S. saying, Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Please receive our worship through the merits of Jesus Christ as we end this service by singing this hymn. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.